This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio podcast on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox and I'm a Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. We're here for you and we want to answer your questions. So send them to us at pwradio at publishersweekly.com or tweet them to at pubweeklyradio. That's pub WKLY radio on Twitter. Today we'll be talking with Deborah Mailer, whose novel The Bookstore recalls her times working in a New York bookshop. Then PW co-editorial director Michael Coffey will tell us about his recent reading of The Letters of J.F. Powers. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list powered by Nielsen Bookscan. So, uh, there are really two debuts in nonfiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is at number 16, uh, and this is called Eating on the Wild Side, The Missing Link to Optimum Health by Joe Robinson. Uh, this is a book about the what he calls the next stage of the food revolution, uh, a radical way to select fruits and vegetables and reclaim the flavor and nutrients we lost. So it's a uh, combination diet, health-conscious book, or at least diet, not a dieting book, uh, but a way to uh, through um, vegetables, fruit, uh, and selecting the right ones at the right time, uh, kind of gaining your way to optimum health. So anyway, this is at number 16, uh, debuting here. And the other one I have is, and we have a new number one. Oh, that's exciting. And it's called The Liberty Amendments, Restoring the American Republic by Mark Levine. Uh, and and in this book, he's so he's he's uh, a, no stranger to the bestseller list. He's had number one uh, New York Times bestselling with Ameritopia and Liberty and Tyranny. He's the president of Landmark Legal Foundation, and he's also, many people know him as a conservative uh, talk show host. So those are two books on nonfiction and anything in this late August month in fiction. Well, much like the nonfiction list, the fiction list is pretty much the same as it was last week. Uh, However, we do have a number three debut. Um, This is Rose Harbor in Bloom by Debbie Maycomber. Uh, It's a a book set at her Rose Harbor Inn. Um, Nothing terribly remarkable about it. It's a a series set in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, It's a small town. Uh, The the nice thing about an inn, as uh, many people who play Dungeons and Dragons can tell you, is that lots of interesting people tend to encounter one another there, uh, and you never know what adventures might happen. So all sorts of opportunities for somebody to come in out of town, um, which, you know, also a, a Western movie trope. Uh, you know, at any point, somebody could show up, something could happen. Uh, you know, it's nice to have that, that in as a, as a catalyst. You're, you're cracking up over there. I love it. I love it. Do, do uh, folks who play Dungeons and Dragons stay at inns, or is it just the idea of an inn where anything can happen? It's, you know, it's the, the classic start to the game is how do you get the party together? Oh, well, you all meet in a tavern somewhere, and 
you know, suddenly somebody bursts in and says, there's a dragon in the mountains that's eaten my wife or whatever. And the various people around the inn stand up and say, oh, well, how can I help? And then they form a party and they go off an adventure together. This is probably not exactly the plot that yeah, Debbie McCumber put into the, uh, the the Rose Harbor in novels. But, um, you know, it's, it's that same general vibe of in this crossroads, in this place where people meet um, and people travel and visit. And also there are people who, you know, live in the town surrounding and come to the inn as a as a central gathering place. Uh, there's there's a way of stories and people connecting, um, and there's a lot of fertile ground there. Um, now, I, I I always think it's very funny uh, that Debbie McCumber has this series set at the Rose Harbor Inn mm-hmm. because um, Nora Roberts, who is a, another queen of romantic fiction. Uh, bought an inn uh, because she made a whole lot of money with her books and then promptly started setting books there. Um, And, you know, again, it it makes sense to have romance novels there, but her first in Boonesboro book uh, came out in 2011 and Debbie McComber immediately pulled out this this Rose Harbor in series and was like, oh, Nora's got one. I've got to have one. <laughs> or at least that's how it looked from uh, from from over here. Like suddenly inns were the big thing, I guess. And I was waiting for a little bit to see if we were going to have like the inn romance become a, a thing. Um, but it, it never materialized. It's just, it's just these two series. I, I guess I do occasionally see other authors pull out something like that, but it's usually for a one-off I haven't really right. seen series like this take off. So it's just these these two rival small town in romantic fiction series. Uh, it's it's a it's a thing. Well, it actually seems like as you described it, the Dungeons and Dragons, a perfect <laughs> uh, jumping off place because there's so many people who come in, and uh, well, at least. Debbie Maycomer and Nora Roberts have the uh, have the corner on that market for right now. Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, this this one uh, is described as the the charming Rose Harbor Inn, where each guest finds a second chance, and every room comes with an inspiring new view. So maybe even just a a change of scenery, a little vacation can help you put a new spin on life, and that's exactly the sort of you know, kind of inspirational story that uh, really brings in the audiences for these. Particular books. Wow, sounds good. Sounds like Debbie Maycomer is going to have some uh, happy uh, readers uh, yeah. this week. Well, she has uh, eighteen thousand of them so far this week, and the, the book's first week out, um, which is a nice, healthy, respectable number for hardcover romantic fiction, and puts her at number three on our fiction list. I think that might be it for our list. Yeah, that's that's all that I've got. Um, as I said, it's uh, it's it's pretty much the same that it's been. Um, James Patterson at number one, Robert Galbraith, aka J.K. Rowling at number two, Dan Brown's Inferno still going strong mm-hmm. now uh, dropped to number four, but still selling you know something close to fifteen to twenty thousand copies a week, um, wow. which is pretty incredible for something that's been on the list for fourteen weeks now. Uh, so uh, yeah, this this time of year there's not a lot of shifting around, but it'll be very interesting to see what happens in early September. Yes, and I'll be out the next two weeks, and Andrew Albanese will be uh, sitting in, and hopefully uh, the the charts may shift just a little bit for you guys. Well, we'll try and we'll try and hold the exciting news till you get back. (laughs) Great. I'm Mark Rotella, and I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Deborah Mailer will tell us how her bookstore job turned into a novel. We'll be right back.
Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Deborah Mailer on the line. Her debut novel is The Bookstore, in which a Columbia University student gets a job at a small bookstore and shares its struggle to survive. Thanks for joining us, Deborah. Great to be here. If you could, give us a summary of the novel's setting and themes. Um, it's set in a, in a small, shabby second-hand bookstore, or I think you say used bookstore, on the Upper West Side in New York. And, um, and the themes, I guess, would be um, about, about sort of coming to terms with, with what real life is like, um, although it's, um, that makes it sound more bleak, a novel, than it is. Um, it's a kind of coming-of-age novel, I think, in essence. And it's based a little bit on your experiences working in a bookshop on New York's Upper West Side. Um, you're from England. How did you end up in New York working at West Sider Books? Um, I was um, I, I was over in in New York because my husband was working for Cambridge University Press, and um, and I was um, a journalist then. But um, I I was walking past one day and just thought I'd love everybody would love. I think to work in a second-hand bookstore, and um, and I thought I wonder if they just let people come in and work there, you know, as and when they like. And I just walked in and, and asked them, and they said yes. And so I started to work there. I was a little bit bored um, before that. Being wow, what a, a wife! <laughs> what a story, though. I mean, I I feel like among my friends, bookstore jobs have always seemed to be sort of uh, you know, rare gems. And you just you just strolled in and said, "Can I work here?" And they said, "Yes." I well, I had already worked in um, Blackwell's in Oxford in England, so I I had that up my sleeve. But um, it was so much more fun to work in that shop on the Upper West Side than it was to work in in Blackwell's. Although I should say, just in case anyone. From Blackworld is listening. That was a great opportunity to. <laughs> but um, that, that, it's not a really autobiographical book. Um, the setting is, and um, and some of the memories um, I, I kind of had. But um, but it's it's basically fiction. Um, there are little bits of, of it that are the kernels of of what what became the novel. But. Um, yeah, I mean, I've I've been to West Sider Books, um, and I know it, it has a, a stuffed raven. Uh, my partner and I often call it the you know the Raven Bookstore when we can't remember the name of it. Um, and the bookstore in your book has a, a stuffed owl, and so I was wondering if there are other similarities. Oh well, yes, the setting is is pretty much. I, I had no imagination whatsoever over that. I I just used I just used the the that as a kind of backdrop to the story. So it's it's. Pretty much as I describe it in the book, you know, you can stretch out both arms. If you have particularly long arms, anyway, you can stretch out both arms and touch both um, both sides of the bookstore. And it has a, you know, a, a, a stairway to the middle and a mezzanine at the top, and it's narrow and books cascade in piles all over the place, and it's it's beautifully lit. And um, Woody Allen has just used it for his new new film, Failing Gigolo. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah, and and uh, it really. It really captures the kind of atmosphere that's in the bookshop, particularly at night, you know, with the lamps and everything. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a fantastic place to be. And your protagonist, Esme, is uh, a Columbia student. And uh, I realize you say it's not an autobiographical story. Uh, and obviously, there are a lot of differences. You know, if you were 
there in New York uh, with your husband, whereas Esme is dealing with being dumped by her boyfriend just as she's discovered that she's pregnant. Um, but uh, how how about your experiences studying at Oxford? Did those translate at all to her experiences studying at Columbia? Uh, yes, a little bit. The, the, uh, the, the normal thing for most people, I would imagine, unless I'm just extrapolating from my own experience to everyone else's, is that if you go to a place like Oxford or Columbia or somewhere like that, you think everyone is brighter than you are, that you just got in by accident. And, um, and I think that I put, I put that in there, I think, that, that feeling that, <laughs> that, that there was some mistake, surely some mistake, I shouldn't be here. Um, and, and, but also the, um, the thrill of, of, of study, I think, I, I hope I put across in the book a little bit because she really does um, want to do well in her studies. And it's just, you know, that's a kind of background theme. What was it like? I want to talk a little bit about uh, your bookstore experience. And what was it like to launch a party at Westsider? It was so much fun. <laughs> I mean, well, basically, if, if three people showed up, we knew it would be almost full, you know, because it is so tiny. Um, and and we um, we had quite a few people. It was a very intimate thing. Um, I sat on the middle of the stairs and, and did a reading. And um, uh, two or three people got quite drunk. I was very sober <laughs> myself. But <laughs> it, it was great. And then there were a few people just um, turned up just to see what it was all about and ended up buying books. And it was, it was really great. My um, editor just said it was one of the best book parties she's been to in as long as she can remember. So yeah, it was wonderful. Did, did My you daughter get, came too. Oh, that's wonderful. Did you did you get a hit of nostalgia for working there? Did it make you want to go back? Um, it really did. It really did. I was saying that to the to the owner, Dorian, and I I just want to come back and work here because the feeling of suddenly talking about books again all day long to customers coming in and saying, you know, what shall I read or have you got this? It's um, it's a great feeling. My my daughter is illegally because she's a child and I don't think children are allowed to to work. But right now my my daughter is working there. She's um I mean at the moment <laughs> this hour while I'm talking to you, she's um, alphabetizing the science fiction. So I hope she can remember her alphabet well enough to do that. How old is she? <laughs> she's eleven. Oh, fantastic! Great. <laughs> wow, it it must be a while since I've been at Westsider if they have enough science fiction left to alphabetize. I used to go there and pretty much clean off the shelves. <laughs> Um, so now you're back in England, and uh, what sort of work are you doing there? Have you been focusing on writing or something else? Well, I work part-time in a parish church, and um, that is informing my next book. I'm, I'm writing about a stained-glass artist who has been commissioned to do a, a big window in a parish church, and, um, and, and she's in conflict with hypocritical, the hypocritical priest. So um, it's kind of a Barbara, no, it's not a Barbara Pym novel, I wish, but um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's a, an English parish, low-key kind of novel, I think. We'll see what happens. It's, it's exciting to, to write it. I'm not saying it's a, it's a dull book, but it's not, um, it's not car chases, put it that way. Mm-hmm. Well, there's room for everything. <laughs> now, I, I expect there are no car chases in the bookstore either. <laughs> no, there are none. <laughs> 
Um, so from your experience working in these bookstores and um, I imagine researching a bit while you were writing the novel, um, do you have any thoughts on what bookstores can do to survive the recent changes in the publishing and bookselling industries? Well, I've been talking to a lot of independent bookstores because through a company called Together, we've been thinking about doing podcasts and, and um, virtual readings and that kind of thing. And I think that's a, a possibility. But I also think all of these, once you look at what the independent bookstores are doing, that they're, a lot of them are actually thriving now. We, we have it in our heads that they're all going under as fast as you can say Knife or Jack Robinson or whatever, but they're not doing too badly. I think there might be a resurgence of people who want to read real books. You know, they've got screens in front of their eyes so much of the time that they want to disappear into a corner and have a, a real book mm-hmm. and not have anything to do with electrical equipment. Um, and so I, I think then they're, they're very vibrant. The ones I've been talking to and the ones I've, I've seen online looking at their websites. Um, but also that, that, uh, where, where, the, where the staff are choosing things. They haven't got enough money to just buy everything, so there's an editorial eye being cast over what's coming in, which really helps um, when the public come in and, and want to know what to read. So I think, I think that sort of sense of community where everyone is helping everyone and, and, and there are real people recommending books that they've read. That, of course, works with the big, the big stores as well, but... Um, it works particularly well with the tiny bookstores who have to choose their stock carefully, I think. Well, and, and on the theme of bookstores, I mean, uh, what are your favorite bookstores in, in New York or elsewhere? Ooh. <laughs> um, Places that you might have remembered with, you know, with, with, you know that, that kind of helped transport you to another place or something. Um, I have to say that although this is going to be a very predictable response, that the that one, that little one on the Upper West Side opposite Day Bars is, is my, I, I absolutely adore it. I'm, 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 I'm there. I'm supposed to be taking my daughter all around to see every site in New York, and we just keep sitting in there and having a great time and forgetting to go out to see the Statue of Liberty and forgetting to go out to, to MoMA and everything. We're just in there chatting to people, and it's so pleasurable. I, um, I'm, I'm just um, holed up in there most of the time. For, for this trip, but um, you know, there's, there are fantastic little secondhand bookstores in Cambridge, in England. Um, one or two when I was growing up in, in Manchester, I used to take my pocket money and, 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 like everyone else, you know, ignore the Vicar of Wakefield and buy something good. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we've been talking with Deborah Mailer, that's M-E-Y-L-E-R, for those listening in without looking at their screens. You can find her novel, The Bookstore, in bookstores right now. Deborah, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thank you. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW co-editorial director Michael Coffey tells us about the works of venerable American author J.F. Powers. Stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from one of the editors at Publishers Weekly. And today, PW co-editorial director Michael Coffey is here with a report on his recent project to read the letters of J.F. Powers. Um, Michael, welcome back to the show. It's always nice to have you here. 
Thank you very much. Pleased to be here. Um, so the, the title of the book uh, is Suitable Accommodations, and it's got two different subtitles. So tell us a little bit about this collection of letters. Well, first of all, J.F. Powers, um, James Farrell's Powers, um, was an American writer, um, born in Illinois. Um, he lived basically in the Midwest, around uh, St. Cloud, Minnesota, and uh, except for two stints in Ireland. He wrote two novels and about 40 short stories and had quite a reputation in the 60s. He was in the New Yorker quite often. He won the National Book Award in 1963 for his first novel, beating out um, Nabokov's Pale Fire, mm. uh, a book by John Updike. But he uh, he never really uh, made the sort of impact that he had hoped to, and he sacrificed much of his life and his family's life um, for the art of writing. And in this collection of his letters, suitable accommodations put together by his uh, eldest uh, daughter, Catherine Powers, you get quite a rich and somewhat disturbing portrait of the the high costs of uh, you know a devotion to art, or in this case, almost a vocation. Um, and I, I use vocation uh, purposely because Powers uh, was very much a Catholic and wrote about Catholic priests, not exclusively or entirely, but uh, predominantly. And he himself was in the seminary for uh, four or five years, uh, was a Roman Catholic conscientious objector in World War II, and, uh, you know, lived a life of the spirit, um, but also uh, of the, the high art of writing beautiful sentences that um, are among the most comic I've ever read by an American writer. He is really absolutely hilarious. And I, I kind of welcome uh, this this collection of letters for, for two reasons. One is I, I am hoping that it'll uh, direct people back to Powers' writing. Uh, the, the novels and the stories are now back in print from New York Review Books Classics. And uh, these letters from FSG, uh, so far, I think, in the reviews that I've seen, which are quite prominent, there's a big uh, essay in Harper's this month by Paul Eli, uh, Joseph Epstein reviewed it, I think, in the Wall Street Journal, and we gave it a very nice review as well. Um, but, but secondly, in addition to dr- directing people back to Powers' writing, which I think is quite remarkable and it's sadly been forgotten, uh, it's an interesting portrait um, by uh, not a disinterested party of what this man's life was like and what it was like to live with this fellow. And uh, um, it's a little unsettling, uh, frankly, uh, to see just how difficult it was um, to live a life uh, devoted to art and finding really very little commerce uh, connected to it, and yet refusing jobs and, you know, I just uh, dragged the family along. The Suitable Accommodations is the, the title, as you mentioned, Rose, and it was uh, Catherine's sense um, that he was always looking for suitable accommodations and dragging his family hither and yon to, to find them. I think he moved the family to Ireland twice, uh, thinking that uh, they could live better in poverty there uh, than in the United States. But the family, you know, suffered quite a bit from all of that. And he was a tremendously selfish fellow. 
you you'd mentioned uh, you talked about him being a, a Catholic writer. He went to a seminary, although he wasn't a priest. And later on, he taught at the College of Saint Benedict on the uh, English faculty. Now, his his contemporaries, other Catholic writers, uh, Flannery O'Connor, Walker Percy, and even to a certain extent, uh, Catholic convert Graham Greene. How did do you have any idea of how he fit into that pantheon of, of Catholic American, or at least in Graham Greene's uh, British writers? Well, he, he fit firmly within it uh, when he arrived. Um, he had his first book of stories published in 47. Um, he corresponded with and got fan letters from uh, Flannery O'Connor, uh, Thomas Merton, Thomas Merton, uh, famously reclusive, really, um, and monastic, I guess, literally, um, drove all the way to Minnesota to see him and spent two days with him. Uh, Walker Percy was a, a, a fan, as was uh, Graham Greene, I think. Um, and it, uh, it, in the 60s, the early 60s, um, just before the Second Vatican Council sort of removed all the mystery from the church, right. um, uh, Powers had already done a lot of work removing the mystery from the church uh, in his writing, but he was right in the middle of it. Um, and uh, I think, although he had tremendous complaints, and they're they're detailed in the letters about how he was published at Doubleday uh, for his first book, which, as I said, won the National Book Award. Um, after that, um, very little good happened for him. He he went another 25 years, I think, before publishing uh, his second and last novel. And, uh, you know, much of the explanation for powers having kind of drifted out of view is the change in the, the church. Um, it is not the powerhouse in America that it once was. And this book of uh, letters will remind you um, how activist the Catholic Church was in the 40s and 50s and 60s. It was... Um, a social and intellectual powerhouse uh, with conscientious objectors, mm-hmm. Dorothy Day right. uh, publishing The Catholic Worker. And um, he was, um, you know, I think uh, at his apotheosis in around 63, but then the Second Vatican Council, Jack Kennedy killed, um, things begin to change. And now it's seen that, uh, you know, his imaginative world is uh, extremely narrow and indeed literally parochial. Um, but I would contend that um, the, the stories are comic masterpieces and the novels are very well structured. And there's just not a wasted word. Um, it's very deft and economical. And I was interested to, I was just thinking last night about how Catherine Powers has put this book together. These letters are selected, and she has done something that her father did quite well, which is to economically um, and deftly characterize someone. Um, and she does it without much commentary. Um, there's not a lot of uh, exposition in many of Power's stories, uh, their, their dialogue and, and beautiful descriptions of, of the immediate moment. And neither does she. Uh, there's a little afterward in the book and a few comments um, within. But you leave the book with a fairly uh, convincing portrait of of this man, and it's somewhat devastating. I, I think um, 
it's it's slightly condemnatory this book, although he was a loyal husband and and uh, and father. But um, it wasn't a life she'd wish to lead again. I believe she says. Mm. I, I'm glad you've given us the description of uh, you know described how he wrote or what his writing was like. Um, I was going to ask that. The the other thing I wanted to ask was. Um, what do you think is 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 why do you think there's a resurgence or at least a um a resuscitation of his writing now i mean does it seem like that the time is right do you think there's uh there's like a kind of genuine or general receptivity in the air i rather doubt that there's uh there's a resurgence going on for powers and um that saddens me i mean i wish uh, I, I would wish to be wrong um, if um, if the various reviews of this book do send people uh, back to Powers' work, and uh, thanks to New York Review, the the books are available. Um, I think uh, you know there's a chance that uh, at least those who do uh, will be very grateful that they they did because um, there's just um, there's such sparkle to the writing and. Um, you don't you don't see that much today. I mean, the, the stories are as you know sort of watertight as a John Updike story, or uh, and as lyrical as Achiever, um, and funnier than than uh, James Thurber or Gene Shepard. Uh, they're really they're really marvelous. And do you think that books of letters like these do drive people to um, then pick up the novels and the stories? I mean, you know, our review of the of the book of letters of suitable accommodations says it's primarily for Powers scholars, um, and I, I'm sure there are people who, I guess, read collected letters as hobbies. I'm not usually one of them, but. Uh, it, do you get that sense that there are folks who are going to pick this up first and then go from there to Powers' works, or is it really just for people who are already familiar with him? I think only reviews uh, of, of the book will drive people there. Um, the book itself is not something that would uh, even reveal to, to a reader uh, how good a writer he was. It's very kind of guarded and um it's if he's you know he's uh not serving up the good wine in uh, in the letters he's holding himself back and it's a lot of uh, gossip and you know uh, chiding of his wife to do this or do that and very domestic um, but i think uh and paul eli mentions this in his harper's review that um he remains a mystery in this book of letters, and uh, not only as a man, but uh, the question is to uh, the connection between a life lived and a life written. What is it? And it's it's not it doesn't become apparent here. But as the subtitle suggests, this is an autobiographical story, and um, I can only hope that um, you know there will be a fuller biography of powers at some point down the road. He certainly deserves one, I think, and the questions that uh, this collection of letters raises um, suggest that, that uh, there's, there's good work to be mined here, whatever it whatever might be down there. Well, I'm going to put you on the spot very quickly, Michael, and that is, uh, to the uninitiated, what, someone just picking up a powers book, which one would you recommend? I think the the first novel, the one that won the National Book Award in '63, Mort Durbin, which is about uh, uh, an Irish priest uh, named Urban Roach, 
and uh, is is just uh, marvelous from beginning to end. And um, not only do you uh, come to very much like this, this this priest who is quite an intellectual, very smart, um, loves to golf, drive nice cars, drink scotch, and watch the Minnesota Twins on television. Um, he's also uh, committed to doing good work and saving souls and uh, helping parishioners. And um, you know his his uh, sanctity and his temptations are. Uh, always in kind of mortal combat and uh, it, it, it's almost uh, it would be a good sitcom to have um, Larry David say <laughs> as, as Mort Durbin although you may find it funny to cast a Jew in this part but that's how funny he that's is great. <laughs> that's great <laughs> he's got Seinfeld timing I'm telling you <laughs> oh wow um, so I, I don't think anyone would be disappointed in that and there's a nine a nine-hole golf match uh, toward the end of that book that um, will have any duffer or uh, otherwise accomplished uh, golfer in stitches. Well, Michael, thank you so much. Uh, maybe I will get a chance to pick that up at some point. It does sound like a lot of fun and a, a window into a sort of time and place that maybe doesn't get a lot of attention anymore. Indeed, and uh, I could show you a couple of stories that in you know 15 minutes you'll see what I'm talking about with respect to his style. Well, I'm coming to your office right after this. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Michael. Always a pleasure to have you. Thank you. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. If you want to hear your question on the air next week, just email it to pwradio at publishersweekly.com or tweet it at pubweeklyradio, that's pubwkly radio on Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. You can find this in every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio, available for you to listen absolutely free. So check the site out every week for brand new episodes, giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 